Peter Solomon. You're listening to Jazz 88. Swing and I can jam. Wham, rip, up, boom, bam. I'm a killer dilla, yes, I am. Wham, rip, up, boom, bam. When you learn it, you'll be proud. Wham, rip, up, boom, bam. Join the crowd and swing out loud. Some folks say that's. That's Andy Kurtz Orchestra, and recorded 1940, with singer June Richmond on a piece called Wham, Rebop, Boom, Bam. That happens to be the title of a new documentary exploring the musical legacy of Eddie Durham, a pioneering trombonist, guitarist, composer, and arranger who may be one of the most important musicians that you've never heard of. To learn more, I spoke to one of the producers of the documentary, Lauren Schoenberg, the senior scholar at the National Jazz Museum in Harlem. Eddie Durham's a major figure in jazz history as a composer, as an arranger, as a pioneering electric guitar player. And it's hard to think of anybody really who's more important and less appreciated than Eddie Durham. So I felt it was really time to tell that story. He was born in 1906. He died in 1987. And here we are in 2024. And now there's a wonderful one-hour documentary about this man's life explaining why he was so important. Tell me a little bit, if you would, about uh, about his early life. I understand that he spoke Spanish um, for years early on. And can you talk about San Marcos, where he's from, and, and his musical background? Eddie Durham was born in San Marcos, Texas, uh, 41 years after the end of the Civil War. And there was a huge intersection of Hispanic culture, African-American culture, and Native American culture in that part of the country. And Eddie is a product of all that. Uh, one of the languages that they spoke at home was Spanish. English would have been his second language, but that happened very early on in his life. Uh, his brother was one of the rough riders with Teddy Roosevelt in the Spanish-American War. So I would think that if you put the name Eddie Durham in the center of a crossword puzzle and said, I want to talk about American history, there's really nowhere that you can't go uh, through Eddie. <laughs> His father played the violin, his brothers played music, and by his teen years, Eddie was already up and running, playing various guitar-like instruments and also playing the trombone. So by the early 1920s, he's out there playing with circuses, playing with minstrel shows, uh, playing in bands, whatever the heck jazz was going to become. He was right in the middle of it as it was happening, and always with that Texas twang, Texas blues, that's different than the Southwest. It's different than Kansas City. It's different than New York. It's uh, its own thing. He's really a pioneer in many ways. just mentioned Kansas City now. He was a part of Count Basie's orchestra in the 1930s as both a trombonist, I guess mostly as a trombonist and a ranger. Can you, can you talk about his role in Basie's band? There was a great band in Oklahoma City, a legendary band called Walter Page's Blue Devils. And out of that band came Count Basie and Eddie Durham and Hot Lips Page and Jimmy Rushing and many people who later came to fame throughout uh, either through Basie's band or through Kansas City jazz. And long story short, what was happening in jazz in the late 20s and early 30s was people were figuring out how to take a music that was largely improvised, write it down, 
and leave enough room for people to improvise and to create yet another level of great music. Duke Ellington did it on the East Coast. And Count Basie's band, which got credit for all this, really the genesis of it is in what Eddie Durham wrote. So when Count Basie started his own band, they were already playing a lot of the old things that Eddie had written for Walter Page and Benny Moten. And uh, as they came to New York and started making records, they brought Eddie back for one year. I said, we want you to arrange for the band, play trombone in the band, and electric guitar in the band. And so all those things that defined Basie in that first year, really, a lot of the credit has to go to Eddie Durham. He had already played with Gab Calloway. He had already played with Jimmy Lunsford. And then he went to Count Basie, and that's really where the magic happened. Don't the moon look lonesome shining through the trees? Don't the moon look lonesome shining through the trees? Don't your house look lonesome when your baby pack up to leave? Sing for you yesterday and here you come today. Where does, where does Eddie Durham fit in in the pantheon of electric guitar? Um, I know he was an early adapter. Um, was he one of the first guys to record on the instrument or was he the first? When it comes to Eddie Durham and the electric guitar, think of it this way. It's like um, if you were to take a piece of wood out of a wooden sculpture and then the whole thing collapsed, although it's a piece of wood that is not near the top. Uh, that's kind of Eddie Durham and the electric guitar in a number of ways. First of all, he was Charlie Christian's mentor. Charlie Christian is, as we all know, at the root of all electric guitar playing or much of it. Were there other people at the time who were experimenting? Yeah, there's a guy named Leon McAuliffe with Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys. There's other people fooling around with the guitar and the electric guitar. But Eddie's combination of his unorthodox way of playing the instrument, the fact that he was an arranging genius, that somehow he, he married it into this Kansas City Count Basie thing, and a series of records that he made in 1938 called the Kansas City Six with Lester Young, Buck Clayton and friends uh, are among the all-time poetic high watermarks of recorded jazz music. And it was Eddie's record date. In a sense, he's more advanced than Charlie Christian in many ways uh, as an accompanist. So he's a, a prime figure, but we have to shy away from saying he was the first or the most important. But you take him out of the picture and it's radically different. So in addition to playing with Basie, he was a presence in Jimmy Lunsford's band. Can you talk about his connection to Lunsford? Eddie Durham was one of the first guys to leave the whole Walter Page, Benny Moten nexus and kind of go to New York to the big time. They all went later. So he went with Cab Calloway. And as he famously told the story, one night he got so bored or just whatever, he just left his guitar and his trombone on the stand because Cab, at that point, the band was a singer's band. And what Eddie could bring to the band, he just wasn't interested. 
So then he went with Jimmy Lunsford's band, which was in a sense diametrically opposite from the Basie band. Uh, there were a few solos, great players in the band, but it was still mostly an ensemble band. And that's the first real flowering of the modern big band, Eddie Durham. He transformed in a way the Lunsford band. Uh, his arrangements for that band sound like no other, but the solos were still a minor part of it, the creative part. It was mostly arrangements. So he left Jimmy Lunsford and he was floating around. And then Basie came to New York and Basie was playing a lot of his old things. <laughs> and uh, there's articles in the paper about how, why isn't Eddie getting the credit? And Basie's recording these things. So it was worked out that Eddie would come into the Basie band the following year and stay for one year, put his name on a whole bunch of this stuff. And frankly, if you look at the record labels, Peter, uh, you'll see that some of those basic classics, the first record say Eddie Durham, composer. And the second time it comes out, Eddie Durham, Count Basie. The third time it comes out, Count Basie, Eddie Durham, and Lord knows someone else. And this stuff was kind of taken away from him. That's the, that, that's the way the, the music business was. And he was not a great businessman. But I'll tell you something, he died at 80, more at peace with himself and his life. The fact that no one knew really who he was until Phil Schapp came around and then the rest of us joined in and started kind of putting him up front. He wasn't that kind of guy. He's a fascinating figure. So I, I wanna talk about Eddie during the war years. Talk about Eddie's work with Glenn Miller. After Eddie Durham left Count Basie, in 1938, Artie Shaw was after him, Benny Goodman was after him, a lot of the white band leaders. And it was at that point, uh, not uncommon for a great African-American arranger like Fletcher Henderson or Jimmy Mundy uh, or Cy Oliver uh, and these people to like go from the black bands to the white bands, which were, you know, making a lot more money and getting a lot of credit that maybe wasn't even due them, frankly. You know, what the swing era really is, is white America waking up to what black America had been doing for a long time. And so a lot of the white band leaders wanted to have these great black arrangers. So Eddie wrote for Artie Shaw. He wrote for a band called Jan Savitz Band. And then he went with Glenn Miller, just when Glenn Miller was starting to make it big. in A flat. Everybody knows that. Uh, if you put a bunch of five-year-olds on the dance floor and somebody plays that, they get up and just start dancing. Now, Eddie Durham didn't write in the mood. He didn't even arrange in the mood. What he did was he altered the version that Glenn Miller had, that many other bands had, and kind of sprinkled his magic dust on top of it. And somehow, transformed it into this thing that it became. And he was there for several months or a year or so and wrote some incredible arrangements, but also helped tinker with things that other people wrote or special projects like what he did with the Ink Spots. So he, he was with Glenn Miller, left Glenn Miller actually in 1940 before America entered the, the Second World War uh, and wound up spending most of the war years leading uh, all female bands, all girl bands, as they used to call them, the International Sweethearts of Rhythm, and 
it's unbelievable. He was on the bill with the biggest stars. It would be Eddie Durham and the so-and-so. And he wrote arrangements. There's hardly any recordings of that stuff. It's lost to history. I don't want to set the world on fire. I just want to start a flame in your heart. What about um, after the war? What uh, what was happening with Eddie's career? Well, he had a big hit tune. Again, a whole bunch of other people glommed onto it called I Don't Want to Set the World on Fire, which was a big hit during the war years. So he was getting some royalties. And even though, you know, they had added people onto a lot of his hits with the Basie band, I think he had a pretty good income stream. So he kind of disappears almost from the capital letter uh, band leader world. And slowly, as the 40s goes into the 50s, recedes uh, into writing arrangements for some people, but he had growing a family, lives out in Long Island, and kind of disappears from the capital letter music business just doing a lot of gigs. And again, he was not quite like Bartleby the Scrivener, but it's just like, you know, he didn't really choose to compete and to be out there. It's it's an odd story. And then finally, uh, in the late 60s, early 70s, when people started rediscovering these giants, uh, some of whom didn't have Eddie's income stream. I mean, he was not a wealthy man by any stretch of the imagination, but he could support himself and his family very, very comfortably. Finally, a lot of them were bank guards and messengers and stuff like this and Stanley Dance and other people started recording them for English record labels. And then this band, the Harlem Blues and Jazz Band came around. And then Phil Schapp started booking stuff at a place called the West End in New York. And all of a sudden, there were enough people out there to say, wow, here are some giants of the music. And so he came back in the late 60s, early 70s, and by the mid-70s, He was really starting to get a lot of recognition, albeit in a very small little segment of people who cared about the older music. And in 1977-78 is when I joined his band as as an 18 or 19-year-old, and I spent the next several years playing with him. So I I got to see it and experience on the bandstand. I mean, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say thousands of hours or a thousand hours or something like that. Were there things that really impressed you about Durham? Besides knowing the history of... No, of course, of course. Playing with Eddie Durham, I don't know what the analogy would be. I mean, this sounds overblown, but it would be like, you know, some great composer being around them when they wrote and when they played. You know, Bach, Brahms, Beethoven, all those people were great improvisers. And there's an old saying, the best improvised music sounds composed, and the best composed music sounds improvised. And Eddie was one of those people with that spirit who could lead a band. And I, I was in a band with just him on trombone and two oddball guitars that he had half invented, almost kind of a half of a bass and half of a guitar. And the other was, I think, a 12-string or 18-string. I don't know what it was, some odd guitar he played. And an electric organ, me and a drummer. And that was it. And 
playing all those nights and seeing how he could stretch a composition out with riffs and with backgrounds was absolutely magical, but it was a subtle art. And it's the kind of thing that really couldn't be recorded. But he's one of those people whose true essence would never really be captured because it had to do with long things and 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 just a long thing in the same sense that I think that, you know, the real genius of Lester Young doesn't exist on record, but that's another talk for another time. Mm -hmm.